You know, when we're studying King David, what that means is we're going to spend eight weeks in the Old Testament, eight weeks in the left side of your Bible. All right, and, and that has some challenges to it, all right? That side of our Bible, for most of us, tends to be a little more mysterious, a little harder to grasp. Everything seems further away in the Old Testament, doesn't it? But for the places that are mentioned are less familiar than the places we read in the New Testament, on the right side of our Bibles. You know, in the New Testament, you talk about Galilee and Bethlehem and Jerusalem and Rome and Greece. And these are all places that are on our maps today, there are places you could buy airline tickets to on your phone, okay? These names are not unfamiliar to us at all. But we talk about Old Testament, we're in Ur of the Chaldees and Moab and Jezreel, all right? Even if some of those still exist, whoever goes there, all right? These just are not, they don't roll off your tongue the way some of these New Testament locations do. The names in the Old Testament seem a little more distant to us. The New Testament's full of Marys and Timothys and Pauls and Peters and names that we used today. Some of you are named after those people. Old Testament, uh, Melchizedek. Okay, not exactly a common name today. Issachar, Elimelech. How about Belazeel? <laughs> okay, any Belazeels here today? Okay, come up and tell me afterwards if you are. I'll, I'll commiserate with you because these aren't names that are familiar to us and even the spiritual life described in the Old Testament is full of things we don't do today. They were always going to the temple, which we don't go to, and they were bringing blood of an animal sacrifice. Well, even if you understand why that was needed, you also recognize we don't need to do that anymore. Every one of those sacrifices pointed to the sacrifice of Jesus that we just celebrated with the Lord's Supper, so we don't have to do that. So as we read about people's spiritual life revolving around blood and sacrifice, it just makes it a little less accessible to us. And by the way, speaking of Jesus, we all like him, right? Where do you find him in the Bible? The New Testament, the right side of the book, <laughs> okay? Which means we tend to lean, let's be honest, we lean toward the right. We are like basketball players who go well to their right and not to their left, all right? When I was a basketball player, I loved guarding a guy who could go to his right and was not able to dribble the ball to his left. A piece of his game was missing. And sadly, for a lot of us, because we go so well to the right side of our Bibles and less well to the left, there's a little piece of our game, our spiritual game that is missing too because this whole book is, is right. This whole book is true. And if you to spend the time you need and you understand it well, the Old Testament is full of rich, rich stuff. You know, when I, I became a Christian when I was 11 and came up through youth groups in my church, and, and like most of us, I tended to be a right-leaning Bible guy, uh, apart from the Psalms, rarely digging back to the left side of the book until I got to Bible college. And there, as a required part of our Bible program, I had to take Old Testament survey an entire school year, just going through the Old Testament. I'm still friends with the professor who took me through that. It was life-changing for me. I compared it later to, like, like you put on an old pair of jeans that you haven't worn for a while, and you reach into your left pocket and find a crinkle-up $20 bill. You don't expect that. I don't expect that. I keep my money in my right pocket. So it's not too surprising to find wadded up money in my right pocket, but not in my left. The Old Testament was my left pocket. And I was surprised, pleasantly surprised, to reach into it and pull out a $20 bill. So friends, that's kind of what we're doing for these eight weeks of the summer. We are going to be looking for $20 bills all through the Old Testament, specifically in the life of King David. Now, why are we choosing this guy? Well, for one thing, his name's not weird. 
<laughs> We're not studying Bezalel for the next, uh, next eight weeks. He's got a name that's familiar to us. But more than that, the role he plays in the Old Testament and the nation of Israel prior to the birth of Jesus, it can't be measured. Along with Moses, he's probably the best-known character in the entire Old Testament. He's Israel's greatest king. He was an amazing general. He was a poet. He was a musician. There's a lot of stuff that make him worth getting to know for these next few weeks. But the most important reason we're studying this man's life is because of the way God describes him. A label that's put on David that is not put on anyone else in the entire Bible. And when God describes you this way, (laughs) it says a lot. And we should sit up and pay attention because it's a pretty amazing phrase. God says that King David is a man after my own heart. You'll need to advance that, guys. God says of this guy, he is not just your run-of-the-mill king. He's not just your run-of-the-mill character in the Old Testament. He alone is described as a man after God's own heart. Let's see when that happens. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 13, would you? Again, left side of your Bible, Samuel's about seven or eight books in from the book of Genesis. Go about a fourth of the way through the Old Testament. You'll get either 1st or 2nd Samuel, and that'll orient you and head to chapter 13. Now, to understand what's going on when God gives this phrase, this slaps this label on this guy, you need to understand the context of the time. And to get the context, you've got to have a map, right? There's no way to understand context without a map. So what happens here? On this satellite picture of the Middle East you see pretty much 90% of all that happened in the Old Testament. Let me me convince you of that. Abraham comes down in Genesis chapter 12 into this area, lives here as an alien and a stranger. He has kids and grandkids. They end up over here in Egypt uh, initially as guests and then slaves. And they stay there for 400 years. Then there's the Exodus with Moses. Let my people go. Plagues, lice, blood, all that stuff. They come out. There are about a million people by now, and they're wandering here for about 40 years. Then they head up, and under Joshua, they cross the Jericho, they cross the Jordan River, and take Jericho here, the story that John preached on just a few weeks ago. And then they conquer the land, and now they're there. They're in the place that God set up, and God told them, here's how we're going to do things here. You're not going to be like everybody else. You're not going to have a king. All the nations around you, the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Philistines, they've all got a certain way. They've got kings and royal families. And he says, you're not going to be like them. I, God says, will be your king. And for many, many generations, that's how he runs things in his nation. He works with them through a group called the Judges. And in that period, you've got, got, uh, this is where Gideon comes in, and you've got Samson and some of the names you might be familiar with. None of them set up a dynasty None of them passed on their kingness to their children. God just kind of wanted to run things as their king. But the people got tired of that. The people got tired of being different. And they literally talked to the last judge, a prophet named Samuel, and they said, we're tired of being different. We want to be like everybody else. Give us a king. Friends, can we state for the record that when God's people start saying things like, We don't want to be different. We want to be like everybody else. That's a problem. And problems began. God accommodated their request. God said to this prophet Samuel, yes, give them what they're asking for. And so he went and God pointed the guy and he appointed a king named Saul. Saul became king, uh, the first king of Israel, reigned for about 40 years. 
And it started off pretty good. He did okay. But as time went on, it became clear he was not up to the task. Specifically, his spiritual life wasn't what it should have been. He wasn't listening to what God said and doing what God said. And one day, through the prophet Samuel, God fired him. Told him, you will no longer be the king. And that firing is found in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 13 through 14. Here's what it says. You've done a foolish thing, Samuel said to King Saul. You've not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now, your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out, here it is, a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. The first king of Israel is fired because of disobedience. Because he's not taking seriously enough what God had told him to do and not to do. We won't go into the details of what those events were, but just suffice to say that he wasn't doing what God said. And God didn't just say, I'm replacing you. He said, I'm replacing you with someone who's not like you. I'm replacing you with someone who is a man after my own heart. Listen to that phrase. Isn't that amazing? What's that look like to be a person after God's own heart. What's that sound like? And most importantly, how do we get there? How do we become those kinds of people? How do we live the kind of life and have the kind of heart so God could point at you and God could point at me? Say, that person has my heart, has a heart like mine. Friends, that's our goal for these eight weeks. It's as simple as that and as significant is that. It's what we're praying for. It's what we're going to study each time we look at this man's life, not just to know interesting facts about the history of Israel. If that's all we walk away with, what a shame. But if we can leave this study with our hearts changed, shaped even more, so that God would be more likely to look at us and me and you and say, ah, there at Heights Church, full of people after my own heart. Anybody want that? I want that. Let's pray about that. Lord, would you do that? Would you, through the life of this incredible man, would you show us what that heart looks like and teach us how to get there? We can't wait to learn. We pray that you would speak because we're listening. In Christ's name, amen. Friends, we're going to learn over these few weeks that the man after God's own heart was not a perfect man. Far from it. He was a normal person like you and me. He had ups and downs. He did not have an easy life. We're going to be surprised by some of the things we learn as we look at his life. We'll be inspired by others. And we're going to start with the very first time he appears as the choice of God to be the king of Israel. Turn a few chapters over to chapter 16. To your right a little bit. See, we're leaning right now. We're getting toward the New Testament, but we'll stop way before that. 1 Samuel chapter 16. What's going on here? Beginning of the chapter, we see that the prophet Samuel is, is bummed. He's depressed. He's mourning the failure of the king he had just fired three chapters earlier. And that's a normal, understandable thing. He, he cared about the people of Israel. He cared about this man who had been pushed into this amazing responsibility. And he yearned for him to do well for his sake and for the sake of God's people. And he'd failed. So it's a normal reaction for this godly man to say, wow, I had such high hopes. I hope that will come out differently. But in 
verse 1, God scolds him a little bit for that. He's wallowing too much in that because while it's normal and natural, it's backward looking. He's saying, man, looking back at, at what this guy did and what he didn't do, oh, I'm so bummed. And God says, whoa, 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 wait, stop looking backwards. Start looking forwards. I've chosen somebody. You already said that to the king. Now we're going to go find that person. We're going to find that man and tell him that he's been chosen. I'm sending you, God says, to Bethlehem, the town of Bethlehem, to a family of a man named Jesse. And I've chosen one of his sons. Now think about that mission now. God is sending the prophet off. He's given him the location, the town of Bethlehem, a city that gets rather significant later on, <laughs> as we already know. The town of Bethlehem, he's chosen the family. Go to a man named Jesse. One of his sons will be the new king. Now, isn't it interesting that God doesn't say which one? God could have. God already made it. God knew that he was going to pick one of these guys, but he didn't give the prophet the name of the son that had been chosen. I'm curious. Aren't you curious about that? We're going to find out why, I think, in a few minutes. I think there's something going on here between God and Samuel. There's a teachable moment coming for the prophet. So he has most of the mission. He has pretty good clarity, but not quite all. And we'll see why that's important in just a minute. So he arrives in in, uh, Bethlehem in verses 2 through 5, and the people are a little nervous because this man, Samuel, who was a prophet and also the last judge who overlapped into the period of the kings, he's a heavyweight. He doesn't go places for no reason, and drama tends to follow him. (laughs) So the leaders of Bethlehem are a little concerned. Uh, We didn't know you were coming. Is everything okay? (laughs) Are we in trouble? Is there a problem? And he says, no, I've just come to do a sacrifice. By the way, I'd like you to send me to the family of Jesse. So they gather, and now the time has come for God to indicate who will be the new king. Let's look at how that is done, starting at verse 6. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab, the firstborn of Jesse, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. What happens here? Well, Jesse naturally brings his sons, and obviously something significant is happening, and he brings his firstborn first, the oldest son, to the prophet. Normal. The oldest had the birthright. The oldest in that culture had all of the honor. It was assumed if anybody in this family was chosen, well, it's got to be him. And he looks the part. He looks like a king. Specifically, he's big and impressive-looking. And even in his own heart, the prophet says, well, this must be the guy. And he hadn't learned the lesson from the previous king. Because when King Saul was selected 42 years earlier or something like that, uh, he was mainly chosen because of his height. He was head and shoulders, the Bible says, above everybody else there. So people thought, he's got to be the guy. And Samuel said, yes, he's the guy. And he wasn't the guy because it wasn't his height that mattered. It was his heart. And God said about Eliab, His height isn't what counts. Now, on behalf of tall people everywhere, I try not to take this personally. We're a little disappointed in Saul. (laughs) He did not represent us well. But what's interesting is God says again, it's not what you see that matters. I don't look at people like you do, God says. I look at the heart, not at the outward appearance. 
Why, isn't that what we do, judge people by outward appearance? All the time. We look at people, and based on a, a few things we, we take in at a glance, we categorize them. I, I study pretty much every day at Einstein's Bagels in town. I, I, I know, it's embarrassing. I work out at Planet Fitness, and then I, I take it off at Planet Fitness and put it back on at Einstein's Bagels. But I sit there and read, and so people come through quite a bit, and it's, it's so easy to fall into that trap. You look at somebody, look at how they look and, and the way they talk, and, and we have so many ways we categorize people. You ever feel categorized by others just based on your appearance? Isn't it good news that God doesn't do that? Isn't it good news that that's not what matters most to God, that superficial appearance stuff? Friends, God isn't like us. <laughs> In many ways, that is really, really good news. So God says, I look at the heart. There's that heart thing again. Heart comes up again. God says, what I'm looking for in my servant, in the person I'm going to give this responsibility to, is not what he looks like. It's who he is on the inside. And so we know right away, okay, the, the firstborn is not the right guy. Then he goes through, and other people come into play. And you'll have to advance that slide, too, for me. Uh, next slide. There we go. Then Jesse called Abinadab, his secondborn, had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord hasn't chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one, the thirdborn. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So what's happening? It's this parade in front of the prophet. And each one, it's nope, 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 nope. And now the room is empty. We're out of boys. We're out of sons. And the prophet says, are these all the sons you have? Basically, you got any more kids? Because I know God said it was your family. I know it's one of your sons. Do you got any more? And look at their answer. It's amazing. Well, they're still the youngest. They didn't even say his name. They're still the youngest. And, and Samuel said, oh, uh, Jesse answered, he's tending the sheep. We didn't bring him in for this. He's out with the flock. And, and, of course, if he's the last son, Samuel knows, okay, that's got to be the guy by process of elimination. So Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. Friends, this is an incredible moment, a, a, a teachable moment for us and, of course, for this family. Because they had eliminated David from any possibility of being the right guy. They decided it's got to be one of the older brothers, and David winds up obviously being him. So when he arrives, what do we have happen? So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. That's another town in Israel. What's going on here? Well, this anointing takes place. And this is one of those mainly Old Testament ceremonies. That One of the challenges we have maybe in, in relating to it is we don't do that much these days. We do some. There's a place for anointing with oil in our ministries. But it was, seems much more common in the Old Testament. What did it mean? Well, by taking some oil and pouring it on something, it was a way of saying this is set apart for special use. This is not an average object or an average person. God has special plans for this one, and it belongs to God in a special way. 
they anointed the oil, uh, they anointed the furniture in the temple. And by pouring that oil on a table, they were saying, this is God's table. By pouring that oil on a lampstand, no, this is God's lampstand. And by pouring it on David, the prophet was saying, this is God's man. God sets him apart. God has a special plan for him. And the Holy Spirit came upon him. The oil is also often a symbol of that Holy Spirit of God who, along with the anointing, came on King David, this verse says, and would remain on him in a really powerful way for the rest of his life. By the way, friends, that same Holy Spirit comes on Christ's followers when we bow the knee to Jesus. And it's another way God says, these people are mine. They belong to me. So, friends, this is what happens here. This guy has now been identified. David is identified as he's the one. This is God's man. God says, I've got plans for him. The one they left working in the fields when the prophet of God came knocking on their door. The one whose name they didn't even mention when he was, they were asked, you got any more boys? Well, there's the runt. There's the little guy. There's the guy we left out with the sheep. Really? You want to see him? This is the guy that God had chosen. And I believe, as I said earlier, this is a teachable moment for the prophet. This is why God didn't give him David's name before he came to this house. Because the prophet also had to realize as he walked away from this moment, he had to say to himself, man, my God surprises me sometimes. God doesn't think like I think. God doesn't think like we think. God's pretty amazing. And even when his plans surprise us, they're fantastic plans. Well, friends, those, that's the choice. That's the, 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 the event in the life of David that we're looking at today. I'd like to walk through with you four takeaways from this experience that we just got to know. The first is this. God sees you when you feel invisible. That's what David learned, wasn't it? Who could be more invisible than the guy left out with the sheep when the family gathered in the house? Who could be more invisible than the guy whose name wouldn't even be mentioned? You know, it's not uncommon today for us to feel invisible. Has that ever happened to you? Even in a big crowd, you can feel invisible. Maybe in this room right now, you might feel invisible. Do you know God still sees you even when you feel that way? Now, David was the youngest. This feeling tends to happen more often in our day to the middle child. Here's an amazing picture I like. The moment he realized he was now the middle child. That poor guy, it suddenly dawns on him, I'm not the oldest, I'm not the youngest, I'm the other kid, all right? And we laugh about it, but there are some people who still bear some scars from growing up in a family where all the other kids seem to matter the same way David's family was, and you don't. And if you're here and that describes you, can I tell you this right now? God sees you. He sees you sitting here. He sees you in your home. He sees you at your work where you might feel like a cog in a machine. He sees you when you feel like nobody cares. The God of the universe sees you. David learned it, and we need to realize that too. Second takeaway. You never know when God will drop in. Isn't that the case? I mean, imagine David on that day. He woke up in Bethlehem. He's the littlest guy, small, the youngest in his family. And he goes out to work, and it's a normal day. And then by the end of the day, someone says, oh, by the way, David, you're king of Israel. What? 
He couldn't prepare for it. He didn't know it was coming. And all of a sudden, boom, God drops in. You never know. Because our God is alive, because our God is not just a myth, he's not just a dust-covered relic of an old book, he's real and he's alive. And he surprises us. And he drops in when we least expect it. And he opens a door or closes a door and teaches us something and reminds us of how much he loves us. He's got all these ways to do that. And I'm so glad he does. Are you glad he does? I'm glad that God drops in. I know he's always present, but you know what I mean. He, he, he just does something out of the blue when you least expect it. Now, David learned that, and we should learn that as well. Takeaway number three, God prepares you for the mission he gives you. Again, David had, for years, been caring for the flocks. Those flocks, by the way, are going to become very important as he grows and becomes a king. But he had no idea that he was getting on-the-job training for taking care of God's people. He had no clue that when he led the flock of sheep to green pastures or to still waters, that he was getting training for leading the people of God into the presence of God. He probably had no clue that he'd be writing songs that we call psalms today, that would help them worship the God they love and bring them into his presence the way a shepherd brings the flock into the places of refreshment. He had no way of knowing that as he protected this flock from the wolves and the lions and the, the predators that, that were a danger to them, that he'd one day find himself in the role of protecting God's people from their enemies and the spiritual predators that were around them. He had no way of knowing that as he wandered the paths of God's beauty and God's creation in the outdoors, that his love for the God whose fingerprints were everywhere around him, that that would inspire him to write some of the most beautiful worship songs in history, pointing out the way that those parts of nature sing about God. He was being trained without knowing it. I love the way, God, the way Ron preached last week on the role of the shepherd as he took care of sheep and all the things, that, 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 the role that was so important in the life of the flock. And here's David learning that firsthand and then eventually using it in a new role that he did not expect. But maybe the most important takeaway is this one. Friends, it's all about the heart. It's all about the heart. The good news is your heart is what matters most. Not your appearance, not your financial status, not your, your health, not the job you have. A lot of those things, that, well, you can't change much about those things. And those are all superficial. They don't matter to God. What he cares about most is your heart, and that's the good news. But the bad news is he cares most about your heart, and guess what? Your heart stinks. It really does. It's in bad shape. That's the bad news. The Bible doesn't hide the fact that on our innermost being, as human beings, as rebels, as prideful, uh, uh, refuse, we're refusing to bow to the God of, of the universe, our heart is what pushes us to that prideful stand. And our heart's not in good shape. Jeremiah chapter 17, another prophet from the Old Testament says, the heart is deceitful, it's desperately sick, it's beyond cure, who can understand it? We're born that way. We're born in what the Bible calls sin. And it, 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 it's not just a superficial skin problem. It's all the way to our core. I can vouch for that. This week, I started the week really tired from some things, and I could justify the person I was by how tired I was. But I was a jerk for a couple of days. 
jumped all over my wife about a couple things, and I look back on it and go, oh, man. Who of us here would want the innermost thoughts of our hearts recorded all week and shown on the screen here every Sunday? (laughs) No, no thank you very much. Why? Because we know that what Jeremiah says and other verses all through the Bible is true, that we've got a problem. We've got a heart problem. That's the bad news. The good news is God is a heart surgeon. God gives us heart transplants. Before before the thing would even be dreamed of as being popular, God describes through another prophet named Ezekiel, he says to this nation of Israel that was hard-hearted and stubborn and prideful to the heart, what does he say to them? He says, a new day is coming when I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. God described a heart transplant to people who'd never heard of it. And that heart transplant happens at the moment you bow the knee to Jesus, recognize your need for his forgiveness and his salvation, and you say, God, I'm stubborn, and I'm hard-hearted, and I'm a rebel, and I need the new heart you talked about. And he promises to do that. And then once you have that new heart, he promises to shape it to be more and more like his all through your life. Now, the difference between a heart surgeon and and this heart procedure that God does on people is that we're awake through the whole thing. And in fact, he wants us to cooperate as he shapes that new heart to be more and more like his and less and less like the one we were born with. There's all kinds of verses that, that talk about our role in cooperating with the work of God, so our heart becomes better. He's a, he's, say the word heart with me as we go through this list. You'll be amazed. He says, guard your trust in the Lord with all your hide God's word in your seek me with all of your return to me with all of your love the Lord your God with all your obey from your do not harden your sing and make music from your purify your that's only ten We could have done a whole lot more. Why? Because your heart matters to God. Because who you are in your innermost core matters to God. And although your height isn't changeable and much of your appearance isn't changeable and how smart you are might not be too changeable, your heart is changeable. It can and will become more and more like his because he's committed to changing our hearts and transforming our hearts and making us people that he could point to and say, see that guy? See that woman? See that teenager? Yeah, you know what they are? Those are people after my own heart. Friends, that's why we're spending eight weeks in the life of this man. Because he got there. Something about him made God point to him and say, that's who he is. And if you'll pray with me now, I want to pray that that'll happen to us. But I'm going to pray two different prayers. First, a prayer that basically will be for people who already know Jesus and recognize my heart's not where it should be yet. It's a process. Lord, would you, through these next few weeks and the rest of my life, change my heart? But then I'm going to pray a prayer for people who haven't yet had that heart transplant happen yet. People who haven't yet bowed the knee to Jesus. You're kind of curious. You're exploring. You're wondering, well, maybe this is the day when you say, I'm in. And if that describes you, then the second prayer I'll pray, you pray silently along with me. Because it'll be a chance for you to say, God, I need that new heart. Then start working on it. Because I don't want you to come for seven weeks and work on your old heart. That's a waste of time. It's only the new one that God gives you that can really be shaped the way God wants it. So let's pray. And you pray one or both of these prayers with me.
Lord, thank you for this clarity of your word. Thank you for this example of this man. And I pray that not just for these seven weeks, but especially for these next few weeks, God, would you shape our hearts and change our hearts and show us our role to see our hearts become more and more like yours because we want you to be able to describe us the way you describe David. Would you do that for your good, for for your glory and for our good? Now, for those of you who haven't yet taken that first step and had that new heart, would you pray this prayer with me? God, I know who I am. I know my heart. I know it's far from you. I know it's nowhere near what it ought to be. And I know it's a sinful heart, and it's a heart that deserves your judgment. But God, I bow the knee to you now. I know because Jesus died on the cross and took my place that you're ready to forgive me, and I ask for that forgiveness. You're ready to put a new heart in me and change me, and I ask for that to happen. So, Lord, right now I repent of my sins and I turn and trust you because I count on you to give me a new heart and then shape it to be like yours. Whether you prayed the first prayer or the second, all God's people said, Amen. Amen.